Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your Calls One Planet series. On today's show, award-winning author Leela Phillip is back for part two of our discussion about her latest book, Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. On our last show, we spent most of the hour talking about beavers, the unsung heroes of climate action. They have tens of thousands of years of experience of maintaining a healthy ecosystem, reducing the impacts of wildfires, floods, and drought, and restoring our wetlands and rivers. On today's show, we will spend more time talking about the fur trade, violence against indigenous people, indigenous stories, and history. When Leela Phillip did her research in New England, none of the town history she visited included much information about its indigenous inhabitants. Most of what she found concerned the various transactions that transferred ownership of indigenous lands to colonists. But she did her own research and found really interesting information. And so we wanted to have her back so we can spend more time on that. Leela Phillip is a self-trained naturalist and citizen scientist. She teaches in the Environmental Studies Program at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, where she's a professor in the English department. She was a Guggenheim Fellow and was a contributing columnist at the Boston Globe. Leela Phillip is the author of award-winning books of nonfiction that chronicle diverse personal journeys. Her latest book is Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. She spent six years working on this book and is still learning about beavers. Beaverland is now out in paperback. And if you're in the Bay Area or Marin, she will be in conversation with Rosanna Shaw, on Saturday, March 2nd at 1 p.m. at the Book Passage in Corte Madera. You can find information at yourcallradio.org. Hi, Leela. Thank you so much for joining us again. Hi, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be with you. Well, it's great to have you back. We wanted to invite you back because we were really only able to scratch the surface. And I have to say, I was just, I, I really respect you for going so deep into indigenous history in your book. And it was so interesting to read that when you did your research in New England, none of the town histories you visited included much information about indigenous inhabitants, uh, which on one hand is not surprising, but on the other hand, given that there's so much history there, it is pretty shocking in this day and age. Yeah. Well, um, you know, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. Um, I think you're referring mostly to Chapter 12, Stone Walls, um, which was um, a hugely important chapter uh, for me to write. And I I should say it's hard to pick apart all aspects of a really complicated chapter on the radio. But um, I also just want to say I'm not a scholar of Indigenous history. um, And so my own you know, research really was, um, happened while I worked on this book. It was really a journey of discovery. And I think the exciting thing is, the positive thing is we are learning more and more with every new article and book and research. And so much was lost to history. So much was erased. Um, And I think if we can now bring new scholarship, correct some of the incorrect histories and erasures and bring light to those corners, I'm just really proud to have contributed a little bit in any way. And, and I was really, um, I, I'd love to talk to you some more about how I did that research because it was, it was complicated and some of it was serendipitous. Some of it was because I reached out to some really important people that don't get enough attention. Mm. Yeah. So tell us more about that. How did you go about it? Well, um, you know, I think first of all, um, uh, once I, you know, I, I was really focused on the history of the, the beavers here. I, I had decided early on, you know, we're, we're, we, we always look West for big histories about the natural world. It's just part of our American psyche. Maybe you don't realize that out in California, but here in the East, we have a little bit of a, we're always turning our heads West thinking that's where all the stories of the natural world are. But I was pretty determined to look right where I was and see what is here. What is in my own backyard? What is happening here? And the recovery of the Eastern Woodland Forest is an extraordinary story of our time uh, because after deforestation that happened during colonization, these these woodland areas are growing back, right? So there's that. And 
Um, I had early on a conversation, I have to say, with a colleague of mine at College of the Holy Cross who is actually a man. Uh, he, he just last week passed away, so I want to shout out and say his name's name was Thomas Doughton, a brilliant genealogist and a historian, a man of complicated biracial background who grew up in this area. His ancestry was Wabakwasit, the local um, tribe of the Nipmuc here, but also he his he had ancestors that were freed black slaves, which was not uncommon here. Mm-hmm. Um, and he conversations with him early on were like turnkeys that opened my eyes to the complexity of the history and where to look. And um, colleagues are now actually working with his papers, trying to um, you know collect them and maybe get his life's work published. But I want to mention that because I think there are a lot of people doing work. Um, and and there's just the hope that these incredible that, that this work can come to the light of day because there has been so much erasure and distortion and it's really important I believe for us to have a fresh look. Um, it was really important for me once I started to look with new eyes at the local history um, and it really did all begin as I say in the book. I looked at the stone walls and I started questioning the fact of them around this beaver pond. And then I uncovered this fact that they were actually built in 1775 to 1825. And that was actually 80 years after the first settlers arrived. So the story I had been taught of this Yankee farmer, heroic Yankee farmer, taking down the woods, building the stone walls was clearly not true. So who did build the stone walls? And that was the beginning. And then I had conversations with Thomas Doughton that really complicated it because I would soon discover that before 1700, North Americans represented the dominant form of non-white labor. And there's this whole um, sort of hidden history it's being talked about now of you know um, Native American enslavement. Um, That, I think, has been discussed more out West, but it certainly hasn't been discussed here in the East. Hmm. Anyway, the more I dug into that, the more um, kind of shocking it was, but the more important it was and the more interesting it became because the story only became richer and fuller. And to go back to the beavers, one thing I also was interested was leaning into the colonial history. So... The, the, there was this story. Um, I live on Pulpit Rock Road, and the town story about it was that this preacher, John Elliott, was named after this rock, Pulpit Rock, because he, he he had come to this area and stood on this rock and was such a charismatic preacher that even the Native American peoples had come to him in the woods. So that was the story. But when I started to actually kind of lean into that. And this big boulder is right on my road. It's a glacial erratic. um, And it's right near the beaver pond. When I started to lean into the environmental history, I realized, okay, the road was originally a Nipmuc trail. And Nipmuc trails often followed beaver wetlands for a lot of reasons. Um, And so the Nipmuc peoples were actually traveling through here. So long story short, it turns out that he didn't come to the, Nipmuc peoples didn't come to him. He was going to where they were in the middle of the woods. It was, you know, it's just one of those examples where the story had, I think, become completely reversed. And so I Hmm. I thought, okay, I'm going to really unpack this. And John Elliott uh, was a preacher from the Boston area who came out here uh, to look for early uh, Native American converts to Christianity and he established what he called praying villages throughout New England, 13 of them. Uh, one of them is um, Worcester, um, there are others, but one of them was right here in Woodstock. And then I realized, oh my goodness, when I looked at the early maps and I really studied the early stories, the beaver pond I was studying was right on the edge. And I have to say, I'm also very indebted to some Native American scholars like Ray Brown, who did a lot of work on this. She's at Brown University, and and other um, scholars like Lisa Brooks and Rosalind Lapierre, who did this beautiful book on Blackfeet um, uh, religion and and history called Invisible Reality. So I I 
did seek out um, scholars and histories. But when I was here on the ground trying to research things at the town hall and in, in the um, kind of archives, it was really important to go outside and and kind of do research and then bring the questions back because then I could I could question local stories. Hmm. Since you're bringing up the story about John Eliot and the stone wall in your area, let's just dive in there. I mean, this is fascinating information. I also just wonder if if people know, okay, well, I'll just read from your book and then I'll ask you this question. The English pastor, John Eliot, took up this mission with a passion and worked to Christianize Native Americans by setting up so-called praying towns to early converts. John Eliot was the first Englishman to make a serious effort to learn Massachusetts, the Algonquin language spoken by the Native people of Eastern New England. So I wonder, of course, there's no way to know this, but do most people in New England, in Massachusetts, know that Massachusetts was the Algonquin language spoken by Native people in Eastern New England? Uh, not, not at all. And in fact, um, there is a, a, you know, a move in my town, and I'm part of it, to get signage up. I actually joined the Town Historical Properties Commission just so that I could you know, start to have a voice and, and um, kind of, I, I think we need to identify things for what, what they are. Um, so no. And, and, you know, the, the seal of Massachusetts has a native American person on it and the, and they're literally saying in Latin, come save us, which is, which is really shocking that it's there. Um, so at the college where I teach college of the Holy cross and Thomas Doughton was part of this. Um, you know, there was a move to try to get the the pre-colonial uh, history of that of the place where the college um, is now uh, identified, and they've done the college has done a good job get getting a lot of that information out. And um, this town, Woodstock, really is just starting to open its eyes to this this history. So. Mm-hmm. It's a long way to go, and and it's not easy. No, it's fascinating. I mean, I'd love to hear from listeners. I'm sure we have so many listeners who are connected to the East Coast, New England, are from New England. Um, do you know about the Native history of that area? Did you know that Massachusetts uh, was the Algonquin language spoken by the Native people of Eastern New England? And And what are your thoughts about the differences you see between what we hear about Native people in California, for example, I mean, again, you know, Leela, to your point, I, I feel like in many ways we're just starting in the wider conversation to talk about the history of California. It was brutal. I mean, one of the most brutal histories when you look at what happened across the country, the genocide here in California, there are now books about it. There are yeah. more conversations about it. And Native people are you know, fighting to get this information in schools. And so I was just curious when you talked about the East Coast, what does that look like on the East Coast? Are, are, is there more information coming out? Is this getting more attention, Native history? Well, you know, I think there is. And I have to say, um, I'm not sure if you heard, but um, Beaverland just hit the bestseller list. Oh, congratulations. And I think um, I'm so thrilled. I'm so grateful to all the readers who out there who've been helping make this happen. But, you know, I, I go everywhere in this book and I'm really committed to um, telling, um, you, know, you know, I'm a deep researcher. Once I get going, I'm kind of like a beaver. I don't give up. You know? <laughs> and um, and so I think the fact that that people want to to read it um, says a lot. So. I, I do think it's happening, but I think it's, um, you know, we all want change to happen more quickly. I do think that it's really important also to talk about some of the indigenous-led efforts, say, for example, in the world of nature-based restoration and in the world of beavers that I know, um, because I think it could get more attention. For example, in California, your state, there's this incredible initiative, um, the Beaver Working Group, and beavers are being return to the watershed. We, we talked about that last week for listeners who might not have um, been, been tuned in last week. But the Maidu Summit Consortium, um, so the, the seven beavers that were relocated in October 
went to historic Maidu lands in the drainage of the Feather River. And while the state of California, really, the task force got going in 2023, the Maidu Summit Consortium, which took possession of those lands in 2019 and had been working for much longer to get possession of those lands, to repossess them, actually had been working on creating habitat for beaver and working on getting beaver for years before the state of California approached them. So I think, you know, that kind of initiative is happening up in Washington state. The Tulalip tribes tribe is working to bring beaver because they're interested in salmon recovery and salmon create these incredibly rich wetlands that uh, produce a lot of food for juvenile salmon. And in Montana, Dr. Jordan Kennedy, who I, I profile and write about in the book, I when I write about her, she's still a PhD candidate at Harvard, but she's out in Indigenous-led in Montana, and they're doing a really um, interesting, important study on bison and um, restoration of the high plains grasslands with bison. She's doing a beaver-bison-human study. So I think... Um, it's important to acknowledge the the work that's been going on and the ways in which, despite the histories that you're talking about, uh, indigenous peoples have not only been here, but they've they've been more than just surviving. And I think it's so important to talk about the history, the brutal history, but then to also talk about what is taking place today. So, so to do both, I mean, as you write in your book um, about Dr. Jordan Kennedy, as she says, the beaver has a very sacred place for us. She went on to mention one of the most important sources of Blackfeet ritual, the beaver bundle. She said, within Blackfeet culture, the beaver bundles are like history books, for each bundle contains objects, each of which holds a song or a story. When you receive a bundle, you learn all the stories and the knowledge. She went on to explain how the beaver bundle was like a library, with the physical manifestations of knowledge literally wrapped up in a bundle and passed down. So those stories, and you start your book out with so many of these stories are also as as just as important to talk about. Yeah, and I should say some stories, you know, I am able to recount, like the story of the great beaver in the beginning, the Algonquin story. Um, but some I would not be because, for example, only authorized beaver bundle, you have to train to hold a beaver bundle, you're chosen, you train, and then only that person can really share those stories and songs. So there are some stories that, particularly origin stories, that it's not appropriate for an untrained person to tell them. So the research for this book was such a journey of understanding also because I think one of the main things I really realized early on is that to do this kind of research is to to start thinking in the terms of indigenous ecological knowledge, I think, which is more relational. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from the beginning, I thought I'm a, I'm a guest here. And, um, and I, and I mean that in, in a, in a deep sense. So, you know, if I may, just for a moment, we, we talk about beavers as a keystone species, but just maybe one example for listeners. But if you talk about beavers with terms of indigenous ecological knowledge or science, you would say keystone relative. And that word relative really shifts um, the focus, not just from all the things that the beaver can do for us, but what we also need to do back for the beaver so that the beaver can prevail. And I think we're really at a moment where we all need to learn these deep teachings of this continent that stem from indigenous ecological knowledge because you know we have all inspiring technologies as i as i write in the afterward we we we've literally dammed up so many of the world's rivers we've stored so many like thousands of cubic kilometers of water in places that they weren't before that we've changed the length of a day on earth so 
you know, that's pretty incredible to think that the weight of impounded water has literally altered the rotation of the planet. We have that much power, but we haven't yet figured out how to live sustainably. And that's where I think these teachings are just tremendously valuable to us in our time, if that makes sense. Today, we're spending the hour with award-winning author Leela Phillip. We're talking about her latest book that is now a bestseller, Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. She spent six years working on this book and is still learning about beavers. If you have any questions or comments for Leela Phillip, we'd love to hear from you. 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at KALW.org. If you're in the Bay Area, Leela Phillip will be in conversation with Rosanna Shaw on Saturday, March 2nd at 1 p.m. at Book Passage in Corte Madera. You can find information at yourcallradio.org. So speaking of thinking of the beaver as a relative, thinking of really plants and animals as relatives. As you write, natives hunted beavers, but did not hunt more than could be used. So you write, across the, con- uh, the continent, Native Americans hunted beavers with spears, destroying their lodges, killing them as they tried to flee, eating their flesh, and using their fur. But Native American cultures, as a rule, upheld strong taboos against not hunting more than could be used. And that was never enough to drive the beavers toward extinction, unlike the fur trade. So can you tell us more about that and what you found? Yeah, so um, thank you for that. This is such a great conversation. Um, I don't get a chance to talk about this part of the book that much. Um, so we'll just, you know, to back up a step. So what happens here in North America is basically what has happened all over the world, right? The conversion of natural resources into power, which is the propelling force of empire. And North America happened to have beavers. So when the European traders arrived, later they would become colonists, they saw beavers as a commodity, right? Not as a resource to sustain life, but as a commodity. And so Beavers would jumpstart the first economies here. Literally, the first currency in North America are beaver tokens. And then by the 19th century, the engines of capitalism get revved up here with beaver pelts. So John Jacob Astor, our first multimillionaire, is selling pelts on the wharves of Manhattan. And um, this is this is the fur trade. And it is it is huge until the beaver get wiped out. And then it's over. Mm. So, but basically to give a little snapshot, you can think of um, basically the Dutch, you know, in 1624, they come, they get, they, they, they come for beaver fur. They establish Manhattan Island, but then after they're pushed out um, and the English and the French start fighting in the 1700s and the 1800s, the native peoples who are living along the east get caught up in those wars and they're called the beaver wars. Um, and that basically is what happens. Native peoples get caught up in these tensions between, you know, geopolitical forces arrive on North America in the form of the fur trade and the peoples who are living here get caught up in it um, for a whole bunch of reasons. First of all, some of the technologies that are coming with the fur trade are useful Um and they want them. But then pretty soon they realize to protect themselves from all the war that's happening, they need things like guns because it is really, um, life is tough. So their traditional value system is so, you know, war is happening and culture is disrupted. People's lives are disrupted. People are dying and if we flash back in about the 1630s, there was massive starvation because it was, it was the little ice age. So both early colonists and Native American peoples were really, really um, starving. Jill Laporte does a really good description of this in her great history of the Pequot Wars um, here in, in uh, Connecticut and Rhode Island. And so you've got this situation that, the native peoples are having to prevail through. But if we, if we go before that, say before 1600, what I found really interesting was 
when I looked at the beaver stories from across the continent and as best I could, the different uh, kind of rituals and, and religious systems that came from thinking about beavers as part of that, there were big differences between, depending on region and environment. So here at, along the Atlantic seaboard, where there's a lot of water, the woodland peoples, like the Algonquin, would hunt beaver because they had a lot of water. In fact, they were managing game. Not only were they burning to create um, some areas of meadow, but they would sometimes hunt the beaver because they wanted the beaver to move on because they knew that the beaver meadow is incredibly rich soil and they would plant corn there. So they were managing game, um, you know, for millennium. And out in the, um, you know, arid high plains and the grasslands, places like later day Montana, you've got peoples like the Blackfeet who understood the grass ecology. So they were dependent on the bison and the bison needed grass. And they understood that the beavers were bringing vital water into an arid region. So there were strict prohibitions against hunting beaver. So it was very sophisticated and it varied depending upon environment. We're going to take a quick break. Today, we are spending the hour with Leela Phillip for part two of our conversation about her latest best-selling book called Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. You can find our last show with Leela Phillip at yourcallradio.org. Uh, we talk about facts about the amazing beaver and just the 10,000s of years of experience that they have maintaining a healthy ecosystem, reducing the impacts of wildfires, floods, and droughts, and restoring our wetlands and rivers. Today, we're spending a bit more time talking about the fur trade, indigenous history, indigenous stories, and if you'd like to join us, the toll-free number is 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. We'll be back after this. This is Your Call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Coming up tomorrow, we will have a conversation with Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who is hoping to be the next senator of California. Congresswoman Lee will be on the first half of our show. So we'll try to get in as many questions as possible. But if you have any questions you'd like us to ask her, please email us, yourcall at kalw.org. On Thursday, we'll be joined by Congressman Adam Schiff, who is also running to be the next senator of California. Again, he'll be on for the first half of the show. Unfortunately, Representative Katie Porter's office declined our invitation, but we will be talking about her record on Wednesday, uh, this Wednesday. If you have a show idea or a guest idea, you can email your call at KALW.org. And if you'd like to join today's conversation with award-winning author Leela Phillip about her best-selling book, Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America, you can give us a call at 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at KALW.org. Leela Phillip will be in conversation with Rosanna Shaw on Saturday, March 2nd at 1 p.m. at Book Passage in Corte Madera. Find information at yourcallradio.org. We had Leela on our show recently talking about all of the amazing information she uncovered about beavers, really incredible creature. And we wanted to have her back to talk more about what she uncovered in her book about the fur trade, about indigenous stories and history. And so we are doing that in part two of our conversation. Leela, just to, to spend one more minute on the beaver wars, because I, again, I think this history is so important. Mm. As you write, as the French and the English battled for control of the fur trade and rushed to build colonies in the new world, quote unquote, native tribes became embroiled. The Iroquois allied themselves with the French and the Mohicans allied themselves with the English, but soon the Mohawks were at war with the Mohicans. Traditional balances of intertribal power and methods for handling disputes were then replaced by years of ruthless war. I, I mean, People probably know the base, some of the basics of this history, but again, it's, it's still so important to, to talk about this and its connection to the fur trade. Yeah, I think it really is. And, you know, I was thinking um, 
I'm glad you brought it back up because I was thinking something I wanted to mention right here. Um, you know, the Wabakwasset who lived here in, in, in Woodstock, they actually tried to resist English domination. Um, so there was something called the King Philip's War in 1675 to 76. And the Nipmuc, um, who the Wabakwasset are part of, they sided with Metacom, who the English called him King Philip. Um, but he he lost. And when he lost, the Wabakwasset found they were in even worse shape than ever. So the lands of the praying town that they were living on as a result of John Eliot's um, sort of protection, actually, they lost that. And then they were arrested um, for any number of crimes and or they were shipped off to the Caribbean. So mm-hmm. that's another kind of hidden history that isn't talked about. How many Native American peoples um, were actually shipped from North America to the Caribbean as part of the slave trade um, as collateral damage in in these uh, wars? This was an early an early war, but it, it's an example of uh, you know it's kind of history that I just you know my mouth would drop open when I was reading it or thinking about it, and I kept. My son, we raised my son here, and when he was like seven, they had a you know old schoolhouse days where they all dressed up in um, like old fashioned clothes, and he had his tri corner hat and his little vest, and they they actually were in a little old fashioned schoolhouse for a week, which was so good for the kids to kind of learn so many things. But I, I kept thinking they didn't learn a thing about anything to do about indigenous history then it was just shocking to me to think back mm. well um, and, and, and shocking shocking to you given all of the work that you have done the books you've written the, the research that you've done yeah although it's interesting um you know i grew up in the hudson valley i'm not i can't remember if we spoke about this last time and in some ways i kind of laughed that one of the reasons i um ended up kind of being interested in beavers is because Growing up on a farm, I was often hot and bored, and we'd end up, um, it was a gift really, but we'd end, we'd end up in the pond when our chores were done, and and I was always chasing frogs, and I think frogs are like beavers, they're these water creatures that disappear, and then they come on land with us, but they're kind of mysterious, maybe that's why kids love them so much, hmm. we can't really go where they go, and beavers are like that, you know, we we see what beavers do, but we we, we really are only now starting to learn about the animal itself with, I guess, technologies that allow us to follow them with robotic beavers and cameras. And and by we, I should say, um, you know, kind of the, the post-colonial we. But um, I think I wrote a whole book about the history of my family. My family's of Dutch extraction and the farm goes back to 1732. We're still farming it. And I found, I, I was so proud of myself. I found the original deed where they got it for this ridiculous amount from the Mohican peoples that were living there. You know, one of those horrible deals that you you kind of cringe when you read it, but still it was like a a legal contract. They got the land and they they officially, quote, bought it. Um, But we all now know that the the terms were, were pretty sneaky. But anyway, it never occurred to me to ask why did the Dutch, my ancestors come in the first place? So maybe it was my karma that I would have to write a book about beavers one day. Uh, Well, so why, why did your family decide to come? Well, I think, you know, I, it was a long time ago, but they were Dutch traders. So, you know, my family, because they lived in this Hudson Valley for so long, we have the original little piece of, Dutch paper that was on the ship. Adrian Van Ness came from Amsterdam to Beverswick, Albany. He he was looking for beaver for sure. Hmm. I, I just you know no one was really talking about that story um, when I researched that book uh, you know twenty years ago. So I think um, it's interesting to me. Beavers really did make America, but we have tended to be more interested in more charismatic mammals like eagles or bison. They seem to be, you know, bigger and majestic and sort of represent more of our Americanness than the beaver. But actually beaver did make America. <laughs> you know, especially if we think about the river systems and um, you know, imagine beaver land when 
before the river systems were devastated, when they were threading through the land, you know, just great fans of water, overspilling banks, then receding in a rhythm with the seasons, more like a circulatory system of arteries and veins pulsing life into the land. You know, we've, we've lost so much of that hydraulic function, which is why states like California are so visionary in these beaver restoration programs. And I think indigenous communities like the Maidu mountain people instinctively knew if we want to fix this land we have repossessed, we need beavers. First thing, we need beavers here to fix the the land because rivers beavers are part of a healthy river ecology. So when we took them out, when the fur trade wiped them out between 1600 and 1900, we initiated this environmental devastation that Thank goodness there are still beavers. People made efforts to bring them back. And beavers are out there right now. Wherever there are beavers, they're doing that work. It's just amazing. Hmm. Well, to your point about beavers making America, as you write in your book, Beaverland, before European colonization, as many as 400 million beavers filled the continent. That's incredible to think about. Yeah. I mean, our whole river system looked very different than it does to us today because we have harnessed water for agriculture, for industry, you know, for all the things we need water for. But to do that, we've pretty much channelized and ditched our river system. And then, you know, as I write about in in the afterword for the new paperback, the U.S. Supreme Court decision last May was really devastating for the river system because it it took away control of, of the tributaries, the intermittent streams. So by dismantling the Clean Water Act that protected intermittent streams, basically they, they narrowed the definition of protection down to only visible and continuous water, which is, you know, most of the tributaries of major rivers in California are going to be intermittent streams. They're going to be dry at certain times. They're going to be wet at other times. So 70% of the river system is now unprotected. Um, so that's, it just means that local communities and states have to really step up and protect their water. Yeah, this is so important. As you point out, this five to four majority overruled science and Congress in a decision that's left 70% of the river network now without federal protection from development, pollution, and destruction. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's so interesting because, um, you know, one of the things I really wanted to share with readers, apart from just um, uh, a celebration of the beaver and our long social history of the beaver, but just to show how beavers are central to the health of the river network. But if you start thinking of the river, river network as a vast circulatory system, then a lot of it is water we can't see. And all the water we can't see is where beavers are working. I'm watching beavers here right now, and they moved to an area that was dry. And then they managed to enable subsurface water to come back up. So they literally reconnected a hidden section of the stream system. It's, It's just incredible. And these are two young beavers like teenage beavers, and they did it in a matter of months. And in November, I actually had a conversation with Dr. Jordan Kennedy because I was trying to figure out how they knew how to do that. And she's she's a really a brilliant scientist. And her theory is that the canal networks that beavers build have been overlooked and are actually really important not just in terms of managing the water, the way beavers manage water, in addition to their damming complexes, because they'll build canals out into the land. And we always thought that was just so that they would have transportation to get more woody material and, you know, swim back with it because they're very awkward on land and, and very vulnerable to predation. But it now seems that the canals actually serve to mitigate water and flood. If you imagine, if you have a big like flood event, not only does the dam hold it back, but then these it can go into the canals. So the, the sheer force of the water is dispersed. But she also thinks that it's clues that beavers look for when they're going to build later. 
And sure enough, I went and looked up historic aerial photographs of that site. And there had been a beaver pond there in 1990. And she said, go look and see if there are any canal vestiges of canals. And there are like little three foot stumpy canal sections. So I think that they were, that's how they knew to build there. Because these are really young beavers. Like, you know, they do a lot of things that don't prevail. Some of their dams break. You know, they're just figuring it out. (laughs) Well, there there are are amazing videos online. I was watching a few beaver videos last night of beavers making dams and making their homes. I mean, it's just incredible cutting down trees and (laughs) just eating the wood. I mean, it's just really amazing to see them in action. One thing to hear about them, but then be sure to listen to the show and listen to the past show if you missed it with Leela Phillip talking about beavers. Uh, her in ma- amazing book, Beaverland, which is now a bestseller. R- listen to that, read her book, and then watch the videos. And it's just, it's just incredible. Um, I wanted just to go back for a minute. You were talking about the Pequot people and what happened in the spring of 1636 in nearby Mystic. The Pequot oh, yeah. were brutally massacred by the English who needed control of the Pequot people and of their wampum production in order to expand the reach of the fur trade. You cited a book by Margaret Newell called uh, Brethren Brethren by Nature. nature. Yes, thank you. And she outlines outlines the way that the enslavement of Native Americans underpinned the economies of many New England towns. In 1641, Massachusetts Bay passed the first slave law in the English Atlantic world, in large part to define the legal status of the hundreds of enslaved Pequot people who'd been incorporated into households after the end of the Pequot War. Before 1700, Native Americans represented the dominant form of non-white labor, and then the New England Caribbean slave trade began. And as you write, those first enslaved Pequot played another historic role. Their transport and sale hath facilitated the beginning of the African slave trade in New England. Yes. I mean, this is such a huge um, historic moment Um, I I was really stunned to think that when I learned the history of the beginning of the slave trade, you know, why was the um, fact that it had been brokered by enslaved Pequot people not part of that? That that really shocked and upset me. So I I made sure to write a whole several pages about it. But just for readers, I mean, for listeners who might might to fill them in. So in 1638, there's a slave ship called Desire that arrives in Boston, and it brings literally the first African prisoners to the Commonwealth. And this begins the the terrible legacy of the New England Caribbean slave trade. Um, So that fact is, is well known. And I had read about it, but I had never known that she was actually on a return trip because she had already been to the Caribbean carrying human chattel which were 17 Pequot who had been captured right here in Connecticut Mm. and shipped to the Caribbean for the slave trade. So that is pretty, that's a pretty big fact to leave out. And it's amazing that that slave ship was called Desire. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's just, even when I read it now, I just, I'm just full of emotion. Mm. I mean, you, you really have to pause for a minute when you go over these facts and let them just be, I think, um, you know, we weren't there, but still, um, it, it's, it's big and it's part of our history and we, we can't have a better future unless we face the dark corners of our past. Right. And, you know, I think we need to find a way to face them and move forward. Um, because, it, you know, when you when I read that fact, it just it just left me seeing everything around me differently. Mm. And this is so important, given where we are right now in this country, talking about the future of democracy in the United States. So many historians are talking about the Constitution, about the founders. But Leela, in the conversations I hear 
This history hardly gets mentioned. I mean, as you write, Alan Taylor and other historians have documented how the colonial need for labor complicated from the start our narratives of American identity. While slavery was abolished in Connecticut in 1784 by an act of gradual abolition, then fully abolished in 1848, Native Americans didn't even gain citizenship in the United States until Congress passed the Indian Citizenship Act in 1924. I mean, we rarely talk about that. That wasn't very long ago. Yeah, I mean, this is something just to go back to, uh, you know, Thomas Doughton, who um, just, you know, such a amazing person. Um and he was one of the first people to really open my eyes to this because I was finding these genealogies and I couldn't find and I was looking up census records and I couldn't find Native American people represented in Woodstock. And um, I was showing them to him and he said, that's because they're identifying as black, because why would you want to be Native American? You, you don't have any rights at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just completely opened my eyes to the complexity also of when you look at census records, you know, people do a lot of things to survive. And he was saying, you know, if you wanted to buy a house in 1911 before 1924, um, you you couldn't get a a loan. Um, You were technically a ward of the state. So, you know, wow. Um, It's just a whole, whole, Give me a whole um, perspective on what life might have been like for a whole group of people and how hard life was and how complicated and how how really remarkable the strategies um, they developed to survive and prevail. And I, I do think it's important to also um, acknowledge that that the that the the prevailing, like the holding on of these stories, as I say in the beginning, you know, I just was really grateful to all the people who had, you know, held on to these stories and protected them and carried them forward so that they were not lost. Hmm. Um, So that's, that's just a a treasure of cultural history. But it was also very interesting because, when I would look up iterations of early Algonquian stories, I would then realize that I also needed to research the researcher and figure out, hmm. you know, had they gotten it right? Were they just completely making it up? What what was their bias? What was their subject position? What was their all, you know, where were they coming from? And who was their informant? Um, all these questions that makes the history, uh, you have to go slowly and thoughtfully and with a lot of care and again i'm not a scholar but i i I, i'm a pretty intrepid researcher i guess i i I beaver down (laughs) and i just found it i found it fascinating and i also felt so committed to just doing my best to um bring what i could to light once i read facts like that fact about the slave ship desire that we talked about Right. And and again, this history that you bring out in Beaverland, based on the historians that you interviewed and all the research you did, is so important, given that the only mention of Native Americans in the town histories was in the context of the, quote, Indian problem or dealing with Native resistance to colonization. Going back to beavers, did you expect, Leela, when you set out, because you spent six years on this book, when you set out to write about beavers, you fell in love with the beavers who are near your home. Did you ever think that you'd be spending so much time also on indigenous stories and indigenous history? No, I really didn't. And I, you know, I, f- I fell in love with beavers. Uh, we talked about that, I think, last time. I just, you know, I discovered beavers by accident. But I, I do think about it now as a, as a moment of awe. Um, you know, one of those moments where you just shifted outside of yourself and you realize you're witnessing some something so much bigger than yourself. So I just really poked at these initially two questions. What is this animal and what is happening here? And the transformation of this kind of swampy area into a beaver pond was just incredible. Um, And there's a reason why they are called a keystone species or a keystone relative, because so much life spreads out from what the beavers do. Um, 
But I think I also fell in love with the story of the beaver because it started to be pretty clear that it was this incredible lens into our history, you know, our environmental history. You know, colonization just did so much damage to the environment and it did so much damage to the indigenous peoples who have always lived here. And I, you know, realized that that's part of the story as well that we need to work through if we're going to come out the other end. Um, so, you know, I was just sort of trying to get, get it, get that all going. Um, and then at the end of the day, beavers in many stories that I would read from this continent are connectors, they're teachers, they're protectors of humans. They're also, as I say in the story that I start the book with, they can be a little mischievous as well. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the thing about this story now is I feel it's such a story of hope and resilience for our time. You know, we we really need stories of hope that are going to lead us to action mm-hmm. uh, because we really are facing just, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges and crises that humanity has faced, which is accelerating climate change. Um, You know, just set aside whatever you believe is causing it for a second. It's happening. Mm -hmm. So in California, right now you're facing what's going to happen when the snowpack on the mountains melts and your whole hydrology shifts to water budget coming from rain. You know, and you're going to need a functioning river system. Yes, exactly. And and beavers. Uh, yeah, you're going to need beavers. We're going to need beavers. Uh, we are out of time. Leela Phillip is author of the best-selling book, Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. If you're in the Bay Area, she'll be in conversation with Rosanna Shaw Saturday, March 2nd at 1 p.m. at Book Passage in Corte Madera. Thank you again so much, Leela, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call. It's your call.